Welcome to the Level Up Artist Podcast. We're your hosts, Adriana M.A. and Jackie Sanders. We're two art professionals sharing for the advice and business lessons we have learned along our creative journeys. We talk to artists, leaders, and art professionals to demystify the creative process and discover new ways to succeed as a career-minded artist. If you find value in these conversations, please go ahead and subscribe. This will help other creatives like you find our podcast and you'll be notified when we drop a new episode every Tuesday. On today's episode, we are super excited uh, to welcome Peter Root. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you both. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course, we are so excited to discuss many things in your creative journey, including your professional artist journey, tips for developing your unique style, as well as recording a bonus segment on income streams for artists for our podcast supporters at levelupartist.com. But before we dive in, we want to share a little bit more uh, about your background with our listeners who may not yet be familiar with your work. So Peter is a visual artist living and working in the Asheville area primarily a landscape painter. He also works in abstraction and enjoys pushing the two together. He sees landscape and nature in his abstract work and abstraction in his landscape, so the relationship is there, strong. Uh, Peter has a studio at Riverview Station in the River Arts District area of Asheville with his gallery Sky and Ground Contemporary Art next door. He also teaches workshops and uh, does selective one-on-one sessions. His work has been featured in publications such as New American Paintings and Studio Visit Magazine. He is also represented by numerous galleries across the country with works included in many private and corporate collections, including Marriott Hotels and Four Season Hotels. And of course, that's the very formal introduction for our listeners. But Peter, how would you describe your work to someone who has never seen it before? Um, <clears throat> I think probably the easiest or maybe shortest way to describe it is that, I, like you said, I'm, I'm a landscape painter and I, I um, use the natural world as my subject um there's a whole series that i do that focuses on clouds i've been working with them for a number of years as well as other land masses and and even water and and but i think i'm really interested mostly in how we take spaces in and how we respond to them um as much as as the spaces themselves so i sort of see the landscape as a subject to begin you know sort of jumping off of to start to really explore what i'm interested in in the content of the work um i work primarily in oils uh i um varies in sizes i work on panel i work on canvas um and i also do a fair amount of monotype work i have a press and etching press so i do mon- I focus primarily on monotypes on the press do a lot of drawing, really love drawing, a lot of charcoal drawing in particular. Um, and uh, as you mentioned before, I, I, I do tend to, in much of the work, particularly over the last five or six years, have kind of started pushing the language of abstraction and the language of landscape or, or representation together in various ways. It doesn't necessarily appear in all of the work, but I, but it does um, fairly consistently in much of it. And, um, you know, we can talk about that uh, more but the form that that tends to take is you might you know see work of mine that has you know a large sort of representational image in it painted image and then there might be sort of i describe them kind of as disruptions coming in from the sides at different points that use more abstract mark making vocabulary and pushing those two together which can create both a lot of challenges and headaches and a lot of interesting (laughs) relationships um has been a real focus and then lately and this is really within the last year, I began, have begun working um, on surfaces that are dimensional. Um, and I say that a little cautiously because I I don't want to imply that I'm beginning to create sculptural work. I really do consider them still paintings, but I think I began to try and explore ways to bring the window, if we think of paintings as windows, off the wall a little bit. 
And that started to take form in, um, in columns, vertical columns that hang on the wall that have a dimensionality to them, maybe five inches out, as well as actual um, cubes. cubes. Yeah, um, that all of this is, you can see on, on my website. And this has all been uh, within the last 12 months or so. Um, and that's been really kind of a, an extension of that idea of, of thinking about how we see and how we take imagery in. Um, that's my elevator. That's a long elevator ride pitch, and that's going to be a really long elevator trip. It's a tall building that you're riding around, but all nice. great things. I think I it's it. kind of a testament as artists. We always have several series going on, and I love that idea of sculptural paintings. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. currently a theme I'm exploring in my work, and it really adds really? Oh, that's, oh, that's interesting. to it. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I, if you had told me a few years ago I would be painting on cubes, I, I would have really looked at you with, with <laughs> confusion, but I... I started doing it. I work with a panel maker to create these these forms, um, and I've been really lucky because they're they love challenges and they love to try things out. And so it was it was at that point where I started saying, "Well, could you make a cube for me?" You know, I mean, imagine you know a a, a painting panel, but instead of it being something that's you know hanging on the wall, you give me all you know six or whatever enclosed um, areas, mm -hmm. and and you know make it about. The ones that I've been doing about 16 inches square, and they were really interested in doing it. They did a fantastic job, and it set up a lot of interesting challenges for me because I had to rethink how my relationship was to the piece I was creating. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. if that's been your experience, but as soon as you begin, as soon as I began to move off of that wall, a whole new set of criteria mm -hmm. kind of set up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And at first, I remember looking at the cube, going, "What what am I going to do with this?" You know, I mean, I had an image in my head, and then when faced with it, there were a lot of interesting dilemmas and, and situations that I had to think through. And then the process of actually creating the work from a, a technique and from a process standpoint was interesting too, because the more I kept working on it, the less available space to, to handle it there was. Yeah. To the point where I was just kind of eliminating any area where I could touch it, you know, until it had dried. And all of that stuff's still in play. I mean, I'm still thinking about all of that stuff as well. Um, but it's been an interesting kind of shift. It's, it's, it's been an interesting outgrowth. Um, not all of the work that I'm doing is dimensional. It, it is just simply a subsection of of what I sort of see as kind of a continual exploration. Um, yeah, so. Oh, that's that's perfect. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the cubes. Yeah, but Jackie and I have definitely been exploring like breaking out of the 2D and the 3D. But we'll talk more about a little bit more about that when we talk about the style. I'm interested sure. in jumping onto the time machine, so to speak, uh, real quick, and ask you, when did you first become seriously interested in art as a potential career? Because obviously as kids, you know, most of us did creative stuff, but, you know, not everybody goes past that stage of thinking this is a fun hobby thing to do. The real job is X, Y, Z. But for you, when when did that first happen? I think for me, um, I, I, you know, in some ways, I think I was a little bit lucky um, in that I, I, I have a hard time remembering a time in which I didn't want to pursue art. Um, but the lucky part for me was that I think that I was exposed relatively early on to the idea that 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 existed. I don't know that I would have that I would have described understanding it as a career, but just understanding that artists existed. I remember when I was uh, about ten or eleven years old, I started kind of discovering the work of of um, some artists that that were both historically twentieth century primarily and people who are still. We're still working actively. Uh, people like Susan Rothenberg and Joan Mitchell and 
and uh, Helen Frankenthaler and Anna and Gerhard Richter. I don't know really where that happened. I had a really good art teacher in high school, and I know some of it came from him. But I also think that, you know, my mother was creative in her own ways. And while she wasn't necessarily a painter, she was really interested in art. So we went to museums. And I think that exposure, probably another way to put it is no one ever told me I couldn't. And <laughs> I know that that's not everyone's experience, um, mm -hmm. but it was mine. I think I spent time, I was always drawing as a little kid. Uh, I was a military kid early on, so we moved around a lot. Drawing was an inward kind of, of of exploration that I could do, even if I was in a brand new place, things like that. So it, it, I don't ever remember not drawing. And then that turned into painting. And I think that I really began to think seriously about, about art as a career, probably in high school. Um, I don't think I knew exactly what it was going, what form it was going to take. And there was a, certainly a part of me that felt, okay, I think I know enough now to know that, or I've been told, if I wanna be able to make a living in art, making art, commercial is the way to go. And so I started out originally as an illustration major and within a semester of, of college, knew that that wasn't right, was told by others in the illustration department, you're in the wrong place and made a switch, never looked back. Um, so it's really always been something in my head. I might've wanted to be a cowboy when I was six for a week <laughs> or something, but other than that, I just didn't know what form it was gonna take. Um, by the time I was in college, I knew. Uh, I, 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 I look back on it now and I think, wow, I, I was really naive, probably a little arrogant and really naive to think that I could make a living doing it. I just, I, I guess, stupidly never thought I couldn't. And then when I started doing it, came, you know, became acutely aware of some, of some mm -hmm. real challenges. But, but at the time, you know, I was lucky I had that support and I, and I, I, I just, I just kind of found a road and went down it. Yeah. And you know, I think that the that it was it was a lot of people around me who gave me the support, showed me some possibilities, and then it was a lot of trial and error. Um yeah, I mean I think yeah. that's probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> I love that. And I think that's something I haven't heard anyone say on our podcast before talking to other artists, but acknowledging I think being a little naive in the beginning is almost a requirement to doing it because I mean, it is like a classic mindset of, well, if you knew all of the challenges you would have to face, that's very overwhelming. But you say, oh, well, I see get, go up one step. Okay, I figured that out, go up to the next step. And so it's that naive element of the creative journey that sometimes can be super powerful, which also makes it confusing, which is why we talk to other artists about <laughs> what does this journey look like? Because no one really knows and there's no rules, which makes it great, but also confusing. I so, couldn't agree more. I couldn't yeah. Agree. And so then of course, becoming a professor, how does that relationship change when you were then um, majoring in art in college, becoming a professor? Did you have a favorite class that you found that you love teaching your students or mentoring them through? I, I did. I did have a favorite. I mean, I think there there really wasn't one that I didn't enjoy. Um, um, I taught, you know, intro to painting, advanced painting studios. I taught intro to drawing, advanced as well. Figure drawing was a real was a real favorite of mine. I think I really enjoyed the the atmosphere that was created. Um, you know, they were all studio classes, so they were all work being done in those classes. Mm -hmm. Distinctly with figure drawing, with some exceptions based on different exercises we might be doing, we were often all focusing on one subject. So it was variations of a single subject, you know, that model or series of models there. We were 
Um, you know, the media could be different. It, it could be um, different, different approaches, different exercises that focus on various things, but we were all using that same subject. And there was this kind of collective that began to occur and would occur with that, that I really liked and enjoyed. Um, what's interesting though, is that what I found when I was teaching was that, you know, regardless of the subject of the class, regardless of, of what we were focusing on with painting and drawing, the common languages that we were, that, that I was talking about were, were, were through lines all the time, because I think that I began to realize that what I was teaching and what I, I believe really good studio art teachers of any, at any level do is they're really teaching and guiding ways of seeing and, and depths of seeing as well as technique, anything technique driven, you know, process driven, all of that stuff obviously matters. But at the end of the day, that through line tends to be understanding how to see and how to take what you see, bring that in, have a response and create through that response point. And, and that would, would be the case no matter what, no matter what the subject. But figure drawing was a lot of fun. And, you know, I had some really great classes. They, 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 were, they were good. My experience with teaching was always part-time. I was always an adjunct professor. I never did it full-time. My goal was never to do it full-time. I, 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 again, back to that sort of naive that we need to tell that we were talking about. I think I, I felt like, here's why I pursued this. I pursued this because I want to make, make art. Mm -hmm. And that might sound naive. That might sound challenging. <laughs> it might sound stupid to somebody's ears. But that was that was clearly where you know my truth lied in terms of what I wanted to do. I was I was I began teaching kind of to put a foot in the door in case everything just collapsed and I had to pursue something more full time. Um, but I, I I always tried to keep it you know as part time as I could two three courses at the most per semester. That's all contract work, so you know it can vary every semester. Um, and I did it until uh, it, it became really kind of clear to me that my studio practice was getting to a point where I kind of had to make a decision. And I was I was thrilled to be faced with that challenge, but yeah, but I had to. And so I chose to go, you know, full time into the studio. Yeah. And that's definitely what I want to ask you about next is like about that transition from teaching at Leslie University College of Art and Design in Massachusetts. There we go. Full name in case anybody's wondering, um, you know, going from that world of academia, which obviously, you know, I definitely love hearing what you said too about having the foot in the door on the other side we a lot of the artists we talk to will take graphic design as their major as that like backup plan or art administration or art history or things like that so for you know for our listeners like it's not uncommon like i went to business school i didn't go to art school i went to business administration and marketing you know <laughs> like that was my my backup plan so to speak so it's not unheard of but um, it sounds like you did really love teaching. Tell us about that transition from academia to full-time artists. Um, I did love teaching, um, but I also, at the same time, I have to be honest, knew that teaching was not the the road, as I mentioned before, that I wanted to do full-time. And, and I actually, I actually sort of described it to myself and to others that I think I was good at teaching what I loved which is art making and and you know everything about it everything about about the process of making art what i'm not sure that i would have described myself as is a a really wonderful overall teacher and and what i mean by that is that i i i define really really wonderful teachers as the ones who who are so invested in everything about their students success that extends well beyond subject that that kind of informs and defines how they approach things and what they do. I admire those people 
had great experiences with them. But I also was, was really honest enough to myself to know that that wasn't necessarily me. In other words, if I did that full time after 10 years, where would I find my satisfaction? How would I feel? And I knew that that wasn't the road that I could take. So I always tried as best as I could to, to you know, not just balance my studio work and my studio practice with teaching, but to only take on as much teaching as I had to, which is never an easy metric to try and find, but, but I tried. When it got really apparent that, that, that I could drop the teaching and step into deep water and give it a shot, it was, it was primarily because the, the, the people I was working with gallerists, consultants, things like that, there was enough coming my way that I had this, this tight time challenge going on. And it was a continual time challenge. And I was finding my, my, myself unable to get around it. And so I had to make that decision. But there was a lot of faith and trust, a little bit blind in doing that. So I, I decided not to renew contracts for the following semester at the time that I, this, that I chose and restructured my time. I think I made a good decision. I probably could have done it a, a year prior but i but i did it when i did it and and i think that it was the right one and took on what i had had already been doing in large you know amounts of time as a full-time thing psychologically it went from lots of years to none where you're 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 spending time with you know 8 10 15 people in a studio and you know you'd have repeat students coming in and independent studies that people would want to do with you as well which i really enjoyed doing um, and then all of a sudden you're spending your days and there are no other ears and no other eyes around you. Some of the things that I did miss initially were the the conversations, the debates. Mm -hmm. And debates were were often sort of the, uh, the best way to describe them. The challenges from people. I think that when my experience was when I was teaching and I had people challenge something that I said, I loved it because it caused it, it required me to think more deeply about, about what I had just said and that, that position that I had, that belief that I had which is nothing but a good thing. It can only be a good thing. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it went from lots of voices to none. And that was, I remember a little bit of a shift for me. It took a little while to get used to that. Um, I did. And, and certainly, you know, I still have lots of great debates with other fellow artists and, and non-artists alike about art and about, about everything having to do with it, but it's in a, it's in a different kind of structure and framework. Yeah. So. I absolutely love all of those points that you touched on, both the logistical changes, the psychological changes, your relationship with having a place where people tell you you have to be versus then, of course, being a full-time artist, it's on you. But yeah. I think the, the biggest thing that stood out to me is understanding the role that other forms of income in addition to your art career have at specific phases. And I think a lot of the times when we talk to other artists, especially emerging artists, that may be something that instantly makes them feel like their art is less valuable if it's not their current primary income stream or at least i had that misconception of oh well i can't be a quote-unquote legitimate artist if i'm not doing this full-time and making x thousand dollars a year based on just original art sales and i think the psychological shift there of then saying which i say on the podcast a lot of i'm a full-time artist with a full-time day job but mm -hmm. being able to distinguish those things, saying I am a full-time artist and I am also a professor and also a mentor and understanding where that energy is going, I think is so, so valuable. So I appreciate you sharing that too. And having that pivotal moment of acknowledging when the shift in energy needs to happen, because you're like, this is taking too much of my time from the art making, which ultimately knowing that's what 
you want to be spending your time doing, which I'm sure leaves you very, very busy because in addition to doing your artwork, you create art for different galleries, exhibitions, managing your gallery, teaching workshops, mentoring. The people that think that artists are just painting every day, all day, every day, we all could only wish. In addition to personal life, family commitments. So I guess from a logistical standpoint um, and psychological, how do you stay organized with wearing all those different hats? So your suggestion, your question suggests that I do stay organized, which I appreciate. Um, I don't always feel that way, but I but I understand the spirit of what you're asking and it's true. It, 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 it On my good days, it does feel fairly organized. I think, you know, before I, I answer that just really quickly, to, speaking to what you had said before, when I when I made this, the transition into deciding to, to to pursue my art without any teaching as kind of a of a of a uh, safety net, I guess, I was fully aware that I could do that for a year and turn around and have and, and have to resume teaching again. I was always, and you know, if I'm being honest, still am open mm -hmm. to the possibility of going back for another income stream if what I'm doing ever starts to not you know meet the requirements um and i think that you know my belief about about being an artist is very simple if you make art you're an artist and if you if you approach it as something that you take seriously and you really have a passion to do and you're actively doing it um it really matters it's irrelevant what else you're doing um whether or not you're not making any money uh, selling work and you you have a full-time job that supports you or it's a mix or you are working and selling full-time none of those scenarios is really any different in terms of being an artist so I, I but i and i hear what you're saying and i understand that that can be a hard definition sometimes for people to be able to come to um the the thing about you know the thing about for me i find that that the organize the organizing aspect of this and i think everybody's different i think everyone will find their different ways i can tell you about mine i see myself very much wearing two different hats and those two different hats affect each other they are they are, are related to each other like a venn diagram they, they 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 blend over each other and they're both they're both very important in support of the other one of them is the aspect of making work the other one is everything else <laughs> that comes in support of that, including marketing, getting work out, updating artist statements, just you know, uh, uh, relationships with galleries, relationships with art consultants who are really private dealers, um, uh, you know, any relationships that you develop online, social media wise, or any other direct link out to people who are viewing your work and who want to experience your work or or trying to find them, all of those things, and you know, studio organization, um, archiving, inventory, everything is 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 sort of another hat for me i found that it's not so much that i i can only wear one hat each day if i come into the studio I'm a, and i'm going to work it's not that that i can't spend half the day with the painter's hat on and then take that hat off and put the painter's support hat on but they are very distinct points i typically will try and structure my day so that i'll come in and i'll know that i'm going to be working for x amount of time and then if I do need to also either, you know, bookend that with a couple of hours of, you know, editing images or getting images out or gallery relationships and calls and, hey, where's my check or, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, that I can do that too. Mixing those two is a little bit harder for me. In other words, painting for two hours, taking a break for 20 minutes and going and do something and doing something else for, you know, that's, that's, that's you know, administrative 
takes my head out of a place that I really need, have spent time getting into that day. And it's a tough shift, mm -hmm. a break for me. And I do take them when I'm working is really still about thinking about the work and thinking about, about the making of the work and the process among other things. What it's not is anything else, but then <laughs> there will be days where I'll come into the studio and, and, and I, my entire day, if not two days straight, will be spent with administrative things. Mm -hmm. um, I realized a long time ago how important they are. I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes. Um, early on, there was not a, a blueprint, a template from others as to how to do this and um, made a lot of errors that I learned from. And over the years began to kind of develop that balance of those two hats. But I have to take one off to put another one on. Um, mm -hmm. I will very quickly see if one of them is is getting the short shrift and needs to be paid attention to. So I've, I've developed kind of my own strategies for making sure that that doesn't happen. But it is very much planning. You know, today I'm going to spend X amount of time doing this, X amount of time doing that. Love it. Okay, answer your question. No, it does. Absolutely love it. Yeah, no, I learned this from another artist. He's coming on the podcast in a few weeks where he was like, do the admin first in the morning, get out of the way and then reward yourself with painting time afterwards. So he's like, yeah. oh, I already did the emails and everything else. And anybody that emails you after your painting, they can wait till the next day. It's not an emergency, you know, yeah. kind of situation. So I'm like, hmm, I really like that. If I can manage it. I mean, sometimes my brain's like, no, we're painting first. End of story. Like we're not admin. We're, we're already in the zone. Like literally I'll wake up and I'm already like, I don't know if this happens to you guys too. Like I'm already painting in my brain. I am painting the next painting. I literally just, I haven't even had breakfast or coffee and I'm like this color here and then this shape goes here. And then like, literally I'm building it in my brain. And the thought of stopping that process, I already have to get in the car to get to the studio. So the thought of adding admin in between, I'm like, no, I refuse. I'll get the yeah. coffee. I'll go paint. I can reward my painting time later with admin and then it usually doesn't happen um <laughs> which that's so funny to hear i was saying like oh like do the admin first and you can like reward yourself with having like all of that creative time of i feel like i'm kind of the opposite in that if i don't paint first thing like that is the peak prime energy because once i get into check checklist type a admin mode it's not that i can't go back into the creative process but that time to get into it is so much longer so it's almost yeah. from a time efficiency standpoint. Like it's really easy for me to dive into almost like the internet admin world, but then as soon as it's a creative <laughs> process, like that has to be first thing. So you it's know, so fun to hear how other artists do it differently and how that's a big part of being an artist is learning what process works best for you. And yeah. I think the commonality in all of that is that is that is is the idea that you're you're spending time devoting yourself to certain things. And you know, everyone is different. And some people, some artists may have uh, a lot more ease with blending them. Um, but, you know, part of, of what I have to do administratively is driven by things I can control and sometimes what I can't. You know, I work with a gallery out in the West Coast who is on a completely different um, time zone. And so we talk when, you know, um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to work for both of us. And that may not necessarily be at eight o'clock in the morning here or so, um, or nine or whatever. And I, so, but I, but I do think I hear what you're both saying, and I think that 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 I'm very much the same way. I I, I define those times. Um, I also have this something was told to me once in school that I that that is that has always rung true to me, which is that if you're an artist, you're making art when you're not even when you're not making art, mm -hmm. you're thinking about it, mm -hmm. you are processing visual information and your experiences in the world, and gathering, and all of that stuff is you know if I ever go on vacation or, 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 you know, go out of town or travel or something for a week or two, 
and I'm not in my studio for a time, um, I'm never that far away from that process. So, you know, I probably would say that that can even come in a little bit when I'm doing administrative stuff too. It's kind of like I never get away from it completely, which sounds like a real, it, it, can, it can be a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, it can sometimes be, you know, oh, Peter, he's that guy who's so distracted when you're talking to him, you know? And I certainly don't ever mean to be doing that, but my brain always feels like a little bit of it's over here thinking about the stuff, you know? And um, I think I sort of made peace with that after a while, you know, it's just, but it, it it's, it's a, it's a, my brain couldn't turn off of that, you know? Yeah, so even when I'm doing administrative fun. stuff, I'm still thinking at some level in some way, I'm, I'm, I'm contributing to the art making mm -hmm. strange, but that's the sort of way it feels for me. Um, yeah. but like but we talked about earlier too, there's even elements that like, if you having those challenging conversations or debates with, um, students or coworkers, it makes you solidify your thoughts. So mm -hmm. I find that with the admin, whether you're editing pictures, it's like, okay, what color is this really that I am in like looking at? Okay. I'm writing a newsletter. How am I really explaining this work and putting words to it? So I feel like a lot of that admin work is also solidifying those creative mm -hmm. ideas in your studio. So it's not just being hyper-present in the process, but then now the next level of how am I communicating this to the rest of the world? And that's absolutely. a creative process in itself. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. They can, agree still, they can still feed each other, which is oh, thankfully good because sometimes it's just hard to turn the art brain off, you know, very hard. I am 100% <laughs> yeah, that person where I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, I can watch a TV show, right? Like, I don't know, British crime mystery, you know, whatever. They're great. You know, they do make the art brain turn off except I'll see this painting in the background of the lobby of something. And I'm a hundred percent that person that pauses and takes the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, who is this painting? Can I find out who made this painting? Are they on Instagram? You know, oh, yeah. anyways, but for the most part, for the most part, for me, at least TV stuff seems to help kind of pause it a little bit until I see something that triggers, but most everything else, if I'm reading a book, like I'm painting in my head, you know, I'm painting the scene, I'm painting the thing. I don't know. So same, same. It, it's hard to turn it off, but it's good to acknowledge that like both sides of that Venn diagram can feed each other. It doesn't just have to be one side just takes everything because it is. Yeah. Um, with that, I do want to ask you, speaking of the art making side of your current work, the cloud, especially, you know, the way I describe them to people when I'm talking about go, if you go to Asheville, go check out Peter Root. Um, it's like they are like photorealistic, right, to a certain extent. And then they have this bold little sprinkle on top of abstract sometimes, you know. Uh, the way I like to describe them, I'm like, I can imagine them in the lobby of hotel. And then you look at this giant cloud painting. And but the first thing your brain says, it's a photo because it looks so real. And then you notice that at the bottom right corner, there's this like abstract dash with hot pink in it. And then your brain goes, wait, this is a painting, you know, like there's just that little Little gentle sequoia, as the French would say, I probably butchered that. But <laughs> my big question, you know, again, with the clouds too and the other types of landscapes is how do you narrow down the style and subject matter of your work? Um, so I mentioned before earlier that 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 I use landscape as a subject. I I think that I, I landed on that. You know, I, I it's probably worth mentioning that I also worked in pure sort of non-objective abstraction as well. Um, you know, in, in individual pieces. Although I tend, I, I've tended lately to be doing that less and working more with this, you know, this subject of landscape. When I was working abstractly, uh, when I was in school, there was a point where I was working exclusively abstractly. Um, but I, 
I came to find that there was always a landscape reference there, often in the form of a horizon line of some kind or, or a horizontal structure that broke up space. It bisected the window in a way that, that sort of suggested, you know, sky and something other than sky. And I, I couldn't really get away from it. And I, I think decided at some point that, that, you know, well, you know, there's something there. There's a reason for this happening. There's a reason it's going on. I'm going to pursue, I'm going to explore that. I'm going to, I'm going to start painting some landscapes because I think it's screaming out at me. And so I did, and I was really happy that I did. I think it was a good choice for me to do that. But I mentioned also that, you know, I, I obviously am a painter and I consider myself a painter, but I, I, I consider myself an image maker. I think we're all image makers, you know, regardless of the, of the materials we use, we make imagery. We work in a language of, of the visual um, specifically, you know, in, in terms of the work that we create. and. I'm very, very interested in how we take images in. I'm mindful of the idea that, for example, we um, have a different relationship to images, the amount that we're experienced, the amount that we are, are exposed to on a daily basis than someone who existed 100 years ago. Um, that's in large part because of technology, constant screens, lots of imagery, the ease at which imagery is now is now created and presented. And even things like other technologies, we can move through spaces much more quickly um, in cars and on planes and uh, then, then we could, you know, maybe extending out a little farther 150 years ago. So that can't not have informed how we see the world around us and how we take the world in. And that's really interesting to me. I'm not interested in criticizing it. I'm, I'm interested in, in exploring it and understanding it better. I can't go back 150 years and feel what they felt, but I can respond i grew up on tv and movies you know and and you know i it's probably safe to say we all did you know at this point and and so that has informed how i experience the world so i found myself really interested in in how images are taken in and that started to inform the work that i did using landscape as a subject point but at the same time i was really interested in the idea of um of suspending disbelief it's the idea you know that that you know you walk into a movie theater you turn the lights go down you, you projected light on a flat screen, you're watching it, you get involved in the narrative. It could be the worst movie in the world. You could be ready to walk out. But you know on some level that if you were to go up to that screen, put your hand on it, that it would be a flat surface and it's light. You know that it's not really a, an interior room with two people talking, but you are suspending that knowledge and going in and flowing into the narrative and allowing that suspension to, to give you the permission to move into the um, the 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 narrative and the, the the artificiality in a way. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the fact that, you know, any one of our paintings or, or works of art, we could go and put our hands on. Um, we know that 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 is a certain kind of of substance on a surface. But if I was to create, put marks down and put them in a certain arrangement, I can create a, you know, a, a sense of an illusion of space, a, you know, a green field. And then I could take that same that same material, the same mark making material, paint, whatever, and slap it down on that surface and have it be physically very much a surface oriented experience. It's sitting thickly, for example, it's dripping, it's asserting itself as a physical form, as a material. And I love that juxtaposition. And so I started thinking, how, what would happen if I pushed them together? What would happen if I created an image inside of a window, created a window of disbelief, of illusion, and then at some point, pushed myself back to the surface with different marks that caused me to almost go like this, back and forth and back and forth. And that was really exciting to me 
and started to create some challenges about how that would happen, what, what that would look like, and what the experience of seeing that would create for me. And that's where the combination of representation and abstraction started to kind of collide together. Um, I think I mentioned before, it doesn't always happen in all of the work, and, and, and sometimes it's much quieter, sometimes it's much more pronounced. Um, but but it often will start to occur. And in addition to that, other things that are reminding me or or the viewer that this isn't a cloud, it's a painting of a cloud. It is a representation of the thing, not the thing itself. That started to play a role also in the dimensional work, you know, that started to come off of the the um, the uh, the wall. You know, every painting is a window. We look at that window. Up to the edges of that window, there's a space that's created. And in the case of pure abstraction, it can sometimes be, it doesn't always have to be, but it can sometimes be very surface oriented. That can still, or the depth can be very shallow, for example. That can bring you into a certain window experience. And then the more things you bring in or you juxtapose can give you another shift in that experience, all occurring within this little screen or this big screen. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely does. Love, and it's, love. it's so fun hearing you describe your work too, because you can tell that with talking with other people about your work, it is solidifying all of those ideas, which as you talked about earlier, like those rich conversations that whether art school or being in artist communities like us at ArtSpace and you at your studio, talking to other artists about your work and those in-depth conversations about it can make it so, so powerful. Yeah, it's, you know, and I think it's important to be able to, to develop what, it's always been important to me. And I, and I, I would say, I think it's important in general for artists to be able to develop language to talk about their work, fully knowing that the language they're using is, is, is being used to describe another language. So there's going to be a, a translation loss there. You know, I can't explain away the experience of seeing a piece of art, visual art with words, nor would I ever want to, because they're two different languages, nor, you know, could I use a painting to describe a novel, but they could, I could find experiential, experiential connection um, but being able to at least give someone who who you're speaking to some ideas to think about when mm -hmm. then approaching the work is important. I think that you learn that or you don't in art school spending. <laughs> but I think that it it is it's an important skill to to develop. And I think it's always yeah. developing. I mean, I think it's always I'm always restating my artist statement, rethinking it. Um, coming up with new ways uh, of, of describing or, or, or whatever, but it is one language describing another, and there's going to be a loss in translation. There, ha there has to be. It's almost like we depend on that. If there wasn't, then we could just be writing instead of painting, or we could just be painting instead of writing. There has to be inherently something that is indescribable about each one of these that can't be described by the other. I know? absolutely so love that. Yeah, and I love that idea too. Like I always you know, when I'm talking to, you know, visitors to my studio, a lot of times I'm, I'm basically telling them, like, I'm translating different things in my life, different emotions, mm -hmm. different things. Um, sometimes it's not just translating, it's transforming, you know, maybe something happened that wasn't positive as a child. And I'm literally taking that and transforming it into something positive. Sometimes it's literally a direct translation. But at the end of the day, part of that translation conversation, another way I like to explain it is, those paintings that you're creating, those windows, as you described, they're mirrors. And they're going to see, based on their own filter and their own lens, what they're going to see. So I could have made a painting that was 100% happy, you know, from start to finish, all optimistic, you know, my first time at the skate park, at, you know, as a kid, and it was great and everything else. And somebody might see something else in it. It reminds me of being with my grandmother the last summer that I was with her in Ireland before she passed away. Like, I've had those kind of conversations where I'm like, 
well, that has nothing to do with me or what I was trying to transmit through the painting. Literally, that person just saw it through their own mirror, through their own lens. Mm -hmm. And I always find that interesting having those conversations, like you said, of like comparing notes in a way and seeing what got quote unquote lost in translation, but more in a way what got transformed through that medium. Um, you know, how they're seeing it versus how we're seeing it. And then I also love like the tie-in um, when you were talking about the movie theater and how it's true, you know, sometimes it gets to that point where you get so much into the work, whether it's in a movie or maybe you're looking at a Van Gogh four inches from your face while the security guard's telling you to back up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're just so immersed into this other world. I don't want to call it escapism, but in a way it almost is it's like respite from the reality that we're in that you just kind of lose yourself into the thing and you're you're starting to imagine you know say it is Vinny as I like to call him say it was one of Vinny's pieces you know what was he feeling at the time you know that the French kids like run him off the village again because he mm -hmm. thought they thought he was crazy or whatever you know kind of thing like did he go off to the fields this did he paint this outside I don't know like there's this magical element I feel like about paintings that it can act as that window or or that almost like um not so much a window, almost like a, a gateway. I guess a gateway would be a better description, you know, or, or, or threshold. Let's call it a threshold that you feel like you can almost walk through and enter a completely different world. And whether it's completely abstract or non-representational or it has representational elements, it just has that magic that can pull you in. But like you said, you can literally just touch it and it's like, no, it's 2D. Like you're not going anywhere. This is not, this is not a mirror that you put your hand through and your hand literally goes to the other side. No, it's going to stop right at the surface, but right. I don't know. Right. There's something so magical about it. So thank you for that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I think absolutely... also... Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think I also, you know, I, I, I'm very mindful for me, artworks are obviously things in and of themselves. They, they exist in the world. One of my favorite parts of, about making art is, is, is knowing that I've made something that didn't exist before. Um, there is something that is, is intensely satisfying about that, but it feeds kind of a real sort of deep sense of, of placing myself in the world on some level. But I also am really mindful of the fact that I see artworks not as ends in and of themselves. I see them as triggers for experiences and triggers for response. It's the starting place. And um, I'm, I, I tend to, see work that way. Um, what that experience is uh, for each individual will vary, of course, and is very, very personal to them. But I almost see them as as kind of the the, the places to get you to, to get something to, to have that experience. You know, it's a starting point. Um, and that indeed, I think not to get too sort of philosophical about it, but and this is not an original thought to me by any stretch, that the viewers complete the work, mm -hmm. you know, when when you experience the work that you're looking at, that is the power of, of the work itself. And so without it, that work is not, you know, sort of giving its giving its full sort of existence. Um, and I, I believe that really strongly. And I think that that that, you know, that those things hold art works in a very sort of unique place in the world. Um that that they I hesitate to call it a function. They exist with this sort of thing that I don't know that I could ascribe to anything else fully. Um, and that's, you know, for me, been without being able to ever give words all the time in the past, that's always been kind of a drive for me, for sure. That sounds like a tangent. I think I went on a tangent. <laughs> a very so productive tangent, though. And yeah, I absolutely love that because 
oftentimes as artists, yes, the paintings are the start of those conversations, especially as artists like ourselves with studios that people can come and visit. It creates that dialogue, which is so, so exciting. Yeah. Um, but real quick, thinking about maybe when you were a professor of if someone was considering art school and wanting to have these rich conversations, but they may not be able to financially afford committing to that um, or logistically schedule lies had conflicts, what would your advice be to artists that are looking to maybe put together their own curriculum, maybe invest in conversations like these about art in their work? What advice would you right. have to them? That's a really good question. Um, I, I, and my response may not necessarily, I'm just going to sort of preface this by saying my response may not necessarily be liked by everyone. So I'm just going <laughs> to throw that little disclaimer out there. Um, I think that we exist in a, in, a, in a much different time than we did even 10 years ago in terms of, of how one can both make art, understand and learn about art. And, um, you know, on sort of another level, wearing another hat, promote and sell art, give access to others to the work, have them, you know, take advantage of being able to live with the work if they want to. Uh, you know, and only one, but I think a really good example is that, you know, it used to be that for fine artists, galleries were really the only, the primary, if not only, kind of avenue for getting your work shown, seen, and sold. And that's certainly not the case anymore. You know, in pre-social media, pre-internet, it was. It's not the case now. In, in the same vein, I think that there are more ways to be able to grow and learn as an artist than there ever were before as well for some of the same reasons, technology, access, access to information. Um, the controversial part <laughs> is that I, if, if, if I had a, a, a person, and actually this has happened um, a few times, say to me, hey, I'm thinking about you know, going and getting my, my degree and going to this, this art school, but, I, but is it worth it? More, more, maybe even a better example is I've got my BFA and now I'm thinking about getting my MFA and I'm going to go $100,000 in debt. Is it worth it? <laughs> That's a tough question right now. I think that it maybe wasn't as difficult to answer 20 or 30 years ago as it is now. But, um, you know, I think that if you are looking to, to go into teaching higher ed, then obviously a terminal degree like a master's degree is, is, is pretty much required. So that's a lot of validity in, in pursuing it for that reason. I think that there are so many ways that one could um, learn, expose themselves to, and practice art making to be guild their, to begin to, be guild, to build their own voice that don't necessarily that that are different from art school. Mm -hmm. um, I I think that you know it's funny because in in a way it almost feels full circle. I would love it you know to see someone agree to you know an artist who's mature take on an apprentice. And have that apprentice, you know, spend three, four, five years in their studio working as their apprentice was a very, very common model hundreds of years ago, and for a long time, <clears throat> doesn't really exist now. We can call them studio assistants, and you know, and, and make make various names for them, but it doesn't necessarily exist in the same kind of structure. The power and and and, and value of that could be profound. I mean, let's face it: you don't need a BFA or an MFA to make art. You don't need a BFA or an MFA to show art. And you certainly don't need them to sell art either. But the experience of, of being in those institutions, you know, towards getting those degrees can be extremely beneficial. So can working with other artists, being exposed to them, you know, 
being a real, real needling person and just saying like, oh my God, I come to your studio all the time when I'm visiting River Arts District. Could I work with you? I'll clean your brushes. I'll, you know, but I could I work with you? Can I watch you work? Can I ask you questions? Can I start to get feedback um, about my own work? Things like that. And then, you know, at the same time, you want to find out some techniques. I mean, I, I could literally go on YouTube right now and find out about glazing. I could find out about a lot of different things. Couldn't do that 20 or 30 years ago. So the information is far more um, kind of, of prolific and available. Um, sometimes it can be so much that it can be confusing, but, but it's a much different kind of situation than, than used to exist. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily think that somebody who doesn't have the funds to get themselves through art school or doesn't want to take on the kind of debt that sometimes is required that can that can follow them around for years and years and years it's a whole nother conversation <laughs> they have other options and those options can be just as strong and just as valid i will say this the more that you are in front of real people and interacting with real people in my opinion versus youtube videos or online you know um, tutorials the better off you are but it's probably you know it can be a real mix um self-taught artists are very common people who did not go to art school i i i i tend to forget to even ask, is that true? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I I tend to not even ask. I don't really spend a lot of time personally looking at people's educational experience. Mm -hmm. I tend to look at their life experience. I tend to look at their sometimes their show experience, the amount of time they've been doing what they're doing, and mostly I look at their work. Um, where they live can inform all of that too, and everything. But I don't spend a long time thinking about their education. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that that's what I would say. I think the short version would be, would be, don't worry about it. There are other ways, you know, if you can't afford art school, there are other ways to do it. Seek it out. You got to be bold though. You got to seek it out. You got to, mm -hmm. you got to ask the questions, you know, you got to find the artists in different buildings in a place like River Arts District or where you are who want to talk, who want to spend their time. And a lot mm -hmm. of them do, you know, Yes, we do. <laughs> they want to share it, right? They, they, it's the languages that they love. They, and also, you know, I believe really strongly in being generous. You know, you would ask when you when you you had had um, we had talked before about about questions uh, about where do you get your income from, and you know for everybody it's different. I would have no problems telling people where it all comes from and what percentage it generally tends to be. Um, the challenges that that occur with working with others, the joys, you know, um, my own screw ups of which there have been tons from a technique standpoint from from a from a marketing standpoint I mean, every any viewpoint you want to, or any topic any area i've screwed up and i'd be happy to share those because you know i i would either want to find out that i'm not alone or especially now be able to give that to somebody so that maybe it would help them i mean i really do feel very strongly in that i, I don't i don't um well anyway i i think that I think that that's really my my answer. It's my very long answer. To your <laughs> I think we live in a time now where there are incredible amounts of opportunities, yep. and I don't know how I would feel about that if I was the president of an art school. But <laughs> I, I don't think that that necessarily negates the value. I just think that it is um, it is one of of a number of different ways to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, plus, I'd like to add in, like realistically speaking, like I went to business school, and depending what what your concentration was, your starting salary could be really healthy, you know, mm -hmm. coming, especially if you were recruited out of school, like we had Morgan Stanley, we had um, Wells Fargo, we had some of the big name brand corporate 
powerhouses, if you want to call it that, um, come out to her school and recruit people. And even as, you know, 20 somethings that had zero experience, they could still be making a good check. And art doesn't work that way. So the expectation of being, you know, 50, $100,000 in debt, but now you got to sell your own stuff at the art market that also sells mugs, candles, and who knows what else. <laughs> there's a there's a little bit of a disparity, which is why it makes sense. And we were mentioning earlier that a lot of students will also do graphic design, which has a you know potentially a higher starting paycheck than you know going off on your own. So I like that you mentioned that. Yes, it was long, but it was a very solid and healthy answer <laughs> of like yes, long. there's different avenues, and you even explored some I hadn't even thought about. Um, so that was great um, in terms of like, yeah, you can make it on your own. And I especially like the point of you saying, seek out people, actual working artists, because I think that also makes a big difference. What we see online a lot of times can be like, oh, this person's like an overnight 10 year success, right? And they're the guru or this thing or that. And it's like, well, not necessarily. Um, also like they could have pre-recorded this like two years ago and they're not even there to give you the support that you need in order to like funnel down. So for me, it was like really important in building my own art education. Like, yes, I've done art classes since I was a kid. Like I've always done art, just not in the academic, you know, for your degree sense. Um, but for me, it was really important once I was like, okay, I got to put on the hat of like, could I do this for a living? That's when, yes, as you mentioned, I actually went to the River Arts District in Asheville, told my husband, wait in the car with our dogs. I'll be back in an hour, four hours later. Um, <laughs> essentially, I literally went and it wasn't on the second Saturday either. So there weren't that many artists there, which honestly, that was a good thing. It would have been too overwhelming. And I literally went studio by studio. And if I resonated with the art in any way, shape or form, even if the art had nothing to do with mine, but if there was something there, there's that seed of an idea of only take advice from artists who work, whose work you admire, you know, same thing, only take criticism from artists you admire. You know, if it's somebody that you're like, you would dismiss uh, their work, dismiss their criticism too, please, thank you, uh, moving on. But essentially it was like that idea of like visiting around and then having that in-person interaction. And then, you know, obviously we struck a conversation and then months later I reached out and I was like, I have more questions, mentor me please. But <laughs> it made a huge difference to not just make it a, oh, I follow you on Instagram and I, you know, join your lives or um, maybe I watched a tutorial. I know you've done, um, our classes through galleries before and things like that, you know, on Zoom and whatever. But that's a heck of a lot different than like, okay, can we talk one on one, get down to brass tacks? This is this is what I'm stuck on, you know, like, and you're ahead of me career wise. And you can probably see this from a bird's eye view a little bit clearer than I can, you know, and there's so not just yourself, of course, but there are just so many artists that like, all you have to do is ask. I mean, don't, demanded of them because they don't owe you anything at least try to build somewhat of a relationship and or pay them please uh, at least buy them a sandwich please <laughs> you know but it's like that idea of like yeah i love that you mentioned that so thank you of uh yeah make attempt to make that connection most of us are willing to talk and share not everybody will say dollars and cents of what they make but they're definitely willing to share at least some some information I think Absolutely. it's really important. Yeah, I think it's really important to be able to, to be as generous as possible. I've met artists who are who are very generous with information. I've met others who are who are less so. And I think that we have the we have the opportunity to be able to to share this stuff with each other. Um, and I think I can't I can't think of reasons not to. And so in this very strange way of making a living, art making isn't strange. Making a living at at, at art making can feel strange. 
um, we all, you know, can sometimes, you know, really benefit from each other's experience because um, we don't typically work in teams. You know, we're working very sort of solitary um, and there's great joy in that. But I think there's also a great challenge, too. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing as someone who did go to art school and was very fortunate enough to get that education. I love, I mean, you even mentioned it earlier, the value of both as a professor, but even as a student, the most powerful conversations and skills that I learned were through realistically independent studies that I had with professors, which is essentially you go to the professor, say, hey, this is something I'm interested in learning about. And you kind of make your own curriculum for the class of these are my goals. This is what I want to learn. So whether it was exhibition design or I one of my mentors who will also be on the podcast coming up shortly, learning how to like get technically trained on a CO2 laser. And then I was helping him physically produce his work as he was shipping it internationally all over the world. Like that is the type of experience that yes, was facilitated by academia. But to your point, that was over 10 years ago now. Instagram did not exist when I was looking <laughs> at colleges. And so I don't, again, we can't say what decisions we would have made in different positions. Um, but even if people are looking at art schools, I think that was a common piece of advice I got. And I'm sure stays clear today even more so is so much of the value I got out of it was leveraging those relationships and resources that you are very generously paying for and making sure that you're using them to the fullest of, okay, what art organizations can you join? What student-run art galleries can you take leadership positions in, internships, mentorships? Because it's all the outside-of-class experiences that I found the most value, which, to your point, they don't require, that's not what you're paying for technically, but it kind of is. Like those are the skills that are then transferable outside of school of constantly looking for new opportunities. How can I do this better? How can I learn about this? Um, and then today's world with technology, it's even more so easier to do that or more accessible in a way. I absolutely agree. And I, you know, and, and in no way do I, do I, I mean to suggest any kind of knocking of art schools, either, you know, bachelor's or, or advanced degrees, um, graduate study. I think they can be really powerful and really strong. There's some really great mm -hmm. programs, people to work with. It's just about what do you do? Like, you know, to speak to your actual original question, what do you do if you don't have those resources? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that it is um, problematic these days, the amount of debt that can be taken on mm -hmm. that can just chase you your entire life. Now, it's one thing if you are taking on, you know, advanced studies and graduate studies with um, the eye towards some sort of degree that will as you mentioned before earlier, puts you into, you know, an entry level kind of situation. That's not what we're talking about with art and art making and being an artist. And so um, it worries me sometimes the amount of debt that sometimes artists are taking on to get, you know, um, degrees if the resources are hard for them to find to be able to address that payback, you know, to pay them all back. It's a tough mm -hmm. thing. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, my experiences in school, ultimately looking back, really where I found the most sort of powerful experiences were, were with the people that I worked with, the people that I interacted with, uh, the professors and instructors, some of my, 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 you know, peers, um, visiting artists, things like that. And, you know, and to some degree facility access to, um, more than any specific, you know, class, coursework, subject, those things are what I remember. And those things are what I think were most valuable. So yeah, thinking about different ways that you can find that is absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Love it. Love it, love it. Yes. All right. For those that are on the fence, here's some here's some hope for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, um, 
moving on to, you know, fast forward to today. Um, mm-hmm. I know we talked on it a little bit earlier regarding, you know, how you balance your time. But what I'm curious about is, okay, so you have your, you know, your your time block, let's call it that, where you do the work, right? Um, you know, you have demands from galleries or upcoming exhibitions, you know, there's the art work part of it, but then there's also like the time to innovate where you're like, I'm going to further my style and things like that. How do you balance those two? Cause I've found, at least in my experience, you know, to just give a quick example, it's like, I can have, if I just go full blown exploration style, it can almost be impossible to stop (laughs) um versus if i am um doing commissions or preparing for a mural or something for a client like those two are are two different worlds even though they're both art making and they're a lot more fulfilling to me anyways than the admin side of things it's still the work side versus the play side so Mm -hmm. how on your end do you balance how do you give time to the two do you have like a designated on fridays we're not doing work art work work we're doing art play I don't know. How do you, how do you handle that? It's a really great question <laughs> um, and pretty loaded one in a lot of ways. I, I, I think, you know, I think that, that, that it can be, depending on how I approach it, it, it has historically been something that could be very confusing for me in the past. Um, the idea that you just described of, you know, giving myself time to try things out and explore and, and should plan on in the process, making a lot of mistakes and, and um, things not working, but that's a really worthwhile pursuit. And thinking about it, or 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 taking the time to actually um, to actually uh, act on the things that have been in my head, the ideas that start to spring up, and such. Versus, you know, what commissions are a great example. What I know someone has, has put a fifty percent deposit on for, and and it's you know they they were really taken with some existing work, and we've talked about it, and I'm creating a certain thing for them. Um, or, you know, uh, I've got to get a body of work to a gallery that is waiting, you know, for inventory or for a show. Um, I, <laughs> I think, well, it's funny, I'm, I'm hesitating only because I, I don't know that I have an easy answer for it for me. I think that I could say that I do, to a certain degree, find myself at, at times saying, okay, on this day, I had this block of time. I'm going to get on my printmaking press and I'm going to just try some crazy stuff out because it's been knocking around in my head. I want to try this new approach, this new technique um, and see what happens, knowing that it may take me the entire day because I'll get I'll get down that hole and I'll just keep trying and I'll respond to what I did and try it again and try it again. I mean, I want to be able to give myself that time. That's a practical decision, right? It's a it's a a practical planning thing. Like It's going to happen on Wednesday. I'm going to do it. And I plan that out because I know on Wednesday I can, because I know I'll still like, I'm not going to, nothing else going to be threatened if I do that. And I recognize the value of it too. And it is really, really important. That's, that sounds really organized. The other thing that tends to happen to me though, is that it begins to bleed out into the work I'm doing anyway, that mm-hmm. I might decide that, you know, I need to do a series of these three pieces that are from this little sub-series that I've been working on. I have these real ideas about what's going to be happening in them, and they're extensions of an ongoing sort of exploration. And by the way, you know, uh, this particular gallery is waiting for them and um, has been really good with selling the other ones. So they have an expectation of that, what they're going to be getting. And then I'm in the middle of it and I go off in a tangent. I need to be really careful of that because if I don't pay attention to the fact that I do it, I can let it just take it over. And result is interesting stuff might be happening 
may not be meeting a um, promise or a, an expectation that I set myself up to meet. So I need to kind of be careful. I tend to look at that and think, well, there are worse problems to have because it means that I'm constantly like, it's, it's, it's trying to burst out of me. I've never had anything that I, I'm not familiar with what artist block feels like where I'm sitting and going, I don't, I don't feel any inspiration or any pull towards doing anything. I tend to be more like, what am I going to do? I want to try all these things. And <laughs> am I going to end up making a soup that just tastes like crap because it's got so many different things in it? I would rather have that problem than the other, but it's still a problem. And so I try and be mindful of that when I'm working. I try and be patient with myself. And a little bit of maybe delayed gratification. Like I will get to that, but I need to see this through. My one of my biggest weaknesses is the last, you know, defined quarter or so of time working on a piece. I want to start the next three. And so <laughs> keeping myself focused to get that through to the end point where I feel like, okay, this is resolved, I have to really kind of push myself towards. That's my thing. It may not be everybody's, it just happens to be mine, but it's a thing. I mean, it's real. Um, so I try to, it requires a little bit of like, shut up, Peter, you got to stop and you got to finish. This, you know? um, and over time, I think it's gotten a little bit easier once that, that I've been doing that, you know, kind of trying to uh, do that, but it is a thing. And I do think that that those, those defined times to allow yourself to do it for me are, 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 I don't think that I wouldn't ever be able to not do it. I, I would kind of, I would start to get very anxious if I didn't. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I just try and blend that in. Um, and yeah. sometimes for me, that will also take the form of a different medium, pushing myself away from the meeting I've been working with for the last week. Now I'm going to do some drawing now. I'm going to do some, some, some monotypes now. I'm going to do image transfer of some kind or something like that. But, uh, but it really can vary. Yeah. yeah. I do the best I can. That's my short. I just do the best. No, 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 no. This is the perfect answer. Cause it's like, honestly, like, okay, this, this would be another three hour conversation. So we are not mm -hmm. doing, going down this rabbit hole. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to say what the opening of the rabbit hole, like what it would lead into, but we're not diving in. It's like, this is how I ended up with ceramics and sculpture. Literally that it was like, oh, this is just an exploration. And then before I knew it, it was like at least six months, hardcore, hardly painting anything. Cause it was all like, sculpture 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 and yeah. it's like but it, then it comes back and then it just like feeds the rest of the work and then it's just like i don't know it's almost like being careful and i'm glad you mentioned it it's like almost careful it's not the word necessarily being conscious of when it's a distraction versus mm -hmm. when it's an expansion of your body of work and it's like it can be both or it can be neither like it's just kind of kind of dancing with the two but also Whenever somebody does tell us that they are creatively blocked, those things that you just mentioned is actually what we suggest to them. Like, go yeah. get out a pencil and start sketching. Like, use that as your warm up because sometimes it's that other media that will trigger ideas and bring you back to the body of work that you got stuck on. And then you're good to go. But I don't want to, <laughs> we can talk about that for like three hours. We're probably going to have to have a Peter part two conversation at some point. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> we can definitely talk about that one for a while. But um, before we do that, one of the things we like to do on our past podcast, we love to ask our guests how they define success. But first, we want to get in a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our Level Up Artists podcast supporters. If you have gotten value out of listening to our podcast, please consider becoming a supporter for $4 a month. This podcast is our way of sharing it forward and we get so much value out of these conversations ourselves, but producing a podcast isn't free. We have personally invested in podcast equipment and video editing software, as well as dedicate our time to produce, edit, and distribute a new episode every week. 
By becoming a podcast supporter, you will help us keep the podcast running smoothly and get access to amazing off-the-record conversations with seasoned artists, authors, art collectors, gallery and museum professionals, as well as industry leaders. These conversations offer even more valuable advice for artists at various stages of their career. You also get access to our artist community platform and our gratitude for keeping the podcast going. Head on over to levelupartisthub.com to sign up and become a podcast supporter today. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so one of the questions we love to ask our guests is how do you define success as an artist or art professional? Um, how do I define success? I think that, that my definition, definition, my answer to that question has probably evolved slightly over the years of doing this. Um, but, you know, I think that my, I define success as an artist really in being able to have the time and the space to, to structure things so that I have the time and the space so that I can make the work that, I'm, that I feel really kind of compelled to make. Um, so that it, I used to describe it as making artwork calms me down, you know? I think maybe a better way to describe it for me is that is that making artwork helps me understand where I am in the world and how I exist in the world and to give structure and substance to the fact that I do. And and there's and and that's a celebra that's a celebratory thing. Mm -hmm. So if I'm able to do that, then then I really do feel the success of kind of hitting that that goal, you know, that 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 need. And that's really primarily how I define it. Having said that, I also am aware of the fact that because I do this for a living and because I do it full time, there are a lot of other measures that I can think of that are much more practical, financial ones, for example, um, show histories, um, sale, obviously sale histories, interacting with being able to interact directly with people in terms of doing commissions and, and selling work directly versus you know, working with an intermediary like a gallerist, mm -hmm. um, those all can have other levels of, of of successful feeling for me as well. I know for a fact that at the end of the day, if I couldn't make money doing this and I had to spend my time making money doing something else to support myself, I would do it, but I would still make work and I would still feel that success level of finding, of, of creating things outside of myself that help me understand myself. Um, so that I think is probably the most important one for me. Does that make sense? That. Absolutely love that. And so what is one piece of advice that you wish you had heard before you got started on your creative journey? I'm going to give you two really quick ones. And each one, each one kind of falls into the category of those two hats that we were talking about earlier, the, the creating hat versus the sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, the administrative hat. Start with the, the painting hat first. I think that I, I, it would be something along the lines of have trust in the fact that if you're making something that has meaning for you, that, that somewhere there exists someone for whom it has meaning as well. The experience of that thing also holds meaning. In other words, if you like it, someone else is going to like it too. How many of those those others is can vary, but that there's a value in that mm -hmm. because I think that had I thought about that more acutely when I was younger as an artist, it would have helped me feel the confidence with which making this stuff requires the trust, 
You know, art making is, is, is very much rooted in trust. You have to trust that it's a valid thing to do. And, and you have to trust that the thing you create has validity in and of itself to be there. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's worthwhile. And so that was, that was really sort of the metric for it. It's like, if I, if I feel strongly about it, I know someone else does too. Finding them can be a challenge, but, but, but they <laughs> exist. The other thing would be the practical side, which is, um, I think that as an artist who is selling on whatever level you might be, mm -hmm. you are not employed by someone, you are self-employed. And as a business, as someone with, a, with, a, with experience in business, I, I, I know this has to ring true for, you know, and, 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 and the level of understanding on this rings probably deep. You need to be able to understand yourself that way, not just in the administrative things, like everything from, you know, from inventory to, you know, taxes, to, I mean, all these different aspects. I'm talking also about the fact that there, there are, are things that you're going to need to do because no one else is going to. One of the biggest is be your own advocate, your own self-advocate for your own positions and your own needs. I don't think that gallerists, brokers, consultants, or even someone who's asking, you know, clients who are commissioning you ever necessarily, if they're good people, intend to, to try and necessarily, you know, be unfair to you. But they have a different kind of set of interests than you do. Mm -hmm. um, I found one of the biggest lessons that I learned was, and I apologize in advance for anyone who's a gallerist who's listening to this, that, um, that gallerists have a fiduciary duty to themselves mm -hmm. to conduct their business, to maximize um, ways to be able to keep their business running. It's a business. There's nothing wrong with that. That is not to be, to be considered less valuable than anything else, but no gallery will ex continue to exist if they are not keep putting an eye at least somewhat towards showing, in, showing work that they be, feel that they can sell. That's not just work they love. It's also work they love, plus they know they can sell. So as an artist, let's say you're working with a gallery and someone walks in. I've said this. I said this to someone recently. A client walks in and they love your work and they're really interested in your work, right? And the gallerist very well represents your work. The stuff on the walls, pulls things out of the stacks, shows other things. And, you know, it's looking like that person is really going to, you know, pursue maybe purchasing your work. And then all of a sudden they turn around, they see the work of another artist that they really like, maybe uh -huh. two. Dealer goes back and says, oh, well, take a look at this. Take a look at this. They spend another half hour on each of those artists. At the end of the day, that gallerist will have success if that person buys a piece of yours, a piece of second artist, or the piece of the third artist. There is nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. That gallerist will be successful in their day. They will be having. They will be bringing in the resources so they can continue what they're doing. But what what they're not going to be doing is necessarily just thinking about you and your own work. You have to be aware of that. You have to be aware that you are the one who has to think about you and your own work. That doesn't mean you're in competition. It doesn't mean that you can't trust gallerists. It doesn't mean that they that, that the people you work with um, uh, can't be devoted to you. And, and, and work towards your interests as well. Again, Venn diagram, the ones that fold together. But at the end of the day, you need to be bold enough to be able to say, this is not going to work for me. Because if you don't, they may not. Um, I've had consultants who have asked very um, unrealistic and, and, um, and somewhat ridiculous uh, <laughs> things of me in the past. Hey, can you hold two pieces for me for a month? No. 
No, because you know that means that I'm not going to show them to anybody else and wait until your one client gets it, where you get a chance to present them to them. No, I can't do that. And I think it's unreasonable to ask, right? I'll hold them for a few days, things like that. Like those things, one can, an artist can feel like, oh shit, what do I do? Maybe I should say yes to that. But uh, because what would anybody else do? You know, am I being dumb by saying no? You got to learn to be able to say no, but not just the act of saying no. You got to say no if it is going to be in your best interest. Mm -hmm. Does that make Love sense? It. I think that it's yeah. kind of yeah. just speaking to the fact that you are a business owner. Yep. And as such, um, you are not going to have a lot of other advocates um, because you don't have this large staff, you know, and you, you know, it's something that I learned. <clears throat> Absolutely. I said yes to a lot of things I shouldn't have said yes to. <laughs> I think we all go through that. And it's also to like, we'll learn over time our own limitations of like, you know, if somebody said, can you make this giant cloud painting and make it 20 feet? You might be like, mm, I can make it 10 feet, you know, <laughs> like 20 feet logistically, absolutely not. Or maybe like you have a client saying, can you paint my grandma and her dog? And then you go, I actually hate portraits. Like, but you had to go through the motions of saying yes. And then going, I really freaking hate this to then like, you know, turn around. I think the biggest thing in, in the things that you're mentioning is that idea of being cognizant and being observant as you go through these experiences and noting yes, I would do that again. No, I wouldn't do it again. And don't blindly say yes to the next one because there's dollars hanging in the balance. It's more like, hold on, how did it go last time? I need to, I need to funnel this down and then kind of stand your ground. Like, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, that sounds like a fantastic, uh, lucrative opportunity, but if it's not a right fit, I'm not going to be like, literally I'm taking like the reason we're artists, right? The three of us is like, because we want to do what we love. And if we say yes to things that then we hate, might as well do a nine to five and get a sure paycheck every two weeks. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> you can hate that, but you still get paid versus like, you know, accepting something you didn't. But speaking of money, um, Peter, if somebody randomly hands you a hundred bucks, what would you splurge on or invest in? It has to be something that brings you joy and relates to your art or business. Great question. I think, you know, I lately, again, speaking back to the fact that I've been really interested in windows and interested in, in, in working on surfaces that are maybe pushing off the wall, thinking about and exploring different ways of doing that. I think I would probably explore um, other surfaces. Maybe I would go spend a hundred bucks on plexiglass and start <laughs> thinking about creating work that is on layers of plexiglass with separators between that you look into that has multiple depths to it. And I really want to be fair uh, in saying that uh, I have an artist friend who lives in New York and she not too long ago, um, uh, posted on Instagram, a piece made up of, of a series of large uh, photo transparencies of water that she had multiple, multiple images of, and then sandwiched them in between pieces of glass and lit the whole thing from underneath with a light box. Oh. And it just creates this luminous, deep, physical thing that I just absolutely fell in love with. Mm -hmm. And it made me start thinking about layering and it made me start thinking about, about everything about it, including how much distance between each layer, what level and quality and direction and source of light, you know, all those things. I think that's probably where I go. I'd probably just go out and buy some things that would allow me to really, it's about like putting the hundred bucks towards something that I, I have been thinking about that I could try. Um, and right now it might be surface. Man. Well, I love that. As someone who is actively layering plexiglass in my studio oh, with light sweet. and shadow, and I may need to ask for that artist Instagram because it sounds Absolutely. like we're exploring similar things. It is Absolutely. so much fun to deal with. Yeah. Sculpture is another layer off of paintings, but then once you put light and shadow into it too, it's, well, so, know, much painting, it's so much painting, fun. Painting is all about light. Visuals yep. 
<laughs> about light. So it makes a lot of sense. So, oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yes. I can, well, her name's Megan Suttles, M-E-G-A-N-S-U-T-T-L-E-F. So everybody go find her. Awesome. Sounds awesome. And I love the idea of reinvesting it back into an experimentation. So speaking of exciting experiments that you may be working on, what projects do you have coming up now that we're wrapping up the end of our conversation? Um, what projects do you have coming up that our listeners should know about and how can they support you in that? Uh, well, thank you for asking. I um, uh, have, I'm, I'm actually in a two person show that's opening this Friday. Uh, so just in a few days. Uh, at a gallery that's actually in my building called Tiger Tiger Gallery, T-Y-G-E-R. Um, and it is owned uh, by someone who I have gotten to know, um, who is also a painter in her own right and a professor. Um, and they've, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful space. I, I made kind of a, of a conscious effort not to show in a gallery space in Asheville because the nature of the River Arts District where I have my studio is such that people walk through. So I actually, my studio consists of two rooms and one of them is a viewing room for, mm -hmm. I guess that's the best way to put it. And mm -hmm. so I, I didn't want to get too involved in kind of competing against that. Although there are some really great galleries in Asheville. Mira, the owner of this gallery asked me, um, and it was a little bit of a last minute thing. Um, and I was able to, I was able to pull together work for it. The opening is this Friday. So it's Tiger Tiger Gallery that the, um, uh, the uh, opening is from five to eight for anybody who's in Asheville, but then shows up for a month. They have a presence on website. They have a presence on social media as well. Um, I'm in a uh, an invitational show at Robert Lang Studios in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, gallery there that um, is putting has put together a, a show of I, I, they told me about 30 artists a lot. So it's only one or two pieces per artist, and the theme is clouds, and <laughs> it's one subject that I work with. So I just sent two pieces down. One of them is a dimensional column piece for that show that opens uh, the following Friday. Um, and I think it's up for about a month, but it's also available to see online, Robert Lang, L-A-N-G-E Studios. My awesome. website is, yeah, that's gonna be fun. Um, my website is 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 always up. It's uh, Peter Rue, it's P-E-T-E-R-R-O-U-X artist, A-R-T-I-S-T.com. Um, I try and post most of the new work there, try and keep it up to date. I tend to use up social media, I use Instagram mostly. Um, started using threads because it's connected now, but <laughs> Instagram is really where I focus, um, and have for quite a while. Things that I post will often cross post onto Facebook and I'm, but I'm not on Facebook very much. It's really <laughs> Instagram. Um, yeah. so I, I really, it's a great platform for me to post a lot of new work, um, yeah. even before it goes up on the site. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, next year sometime I'm going to have a show in Australia, but I don't know when that's Ooh. still be determined. <laughs> It's going to go in a crate, isn't it? Probably. It's going to inform the size of the work too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Shipping that know. way is not yeah. cheap. It's a great gallery and I love them, but, uh, but it is, it is almost prohibitive to work with them. So I constantly am like, oh, this is the best idea, but I love working work with on them. paper. <laughs> Honestly, or, uh, um, and luckily they're, stretch canvas. Willing, they're willing to restretch. So I, I, yeah, Perfect. I, I awesome. roll. Yeah. It'll, it'll save a lot of money that way. I mean, I don't think I could afford it otherwise. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna crate ship things out to us. Sorry, that's it's not gonna happen. Too yeah. far, unless they pay for it, it ain't happening. Yeah, um, they're not gonna do that either. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, there you go. Well, Peter, this has been awesome. We're definitely gonna link all that information, including your socials, um, in the show notes. Uh, would you mind staying with us a few extra minutes so we can discuss income stream for artists on the bonus segment of our podcast for podcast supporters? Absolutely. Yes. And thank, thank you. you both very much. I really am. Um, 
I'm honored that you asked uh, uh, for me to be on here. This was a great conversation and I really, really enjoyed it. And we're honored you said yes. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, for our listeners, if you want to stay in contact with us in between episodes, share your feedback, or perhaps you have a question you would like for us to answer on the podcast, you can reach us through social media. I'm at May Art across all platforms. And I'm at J. Sanders Studio across all platforms. And if you want to follow the podcast, we are at Level Up Artist on Instagram. You can also visit leveluparthisthub.com to hear the rest of this conversation and become one of our podcast supporters. Yeah, and if you become a supporter, you'll get access to amazing off-the-record conversations with our guests, the artist community platform that we have created, and you'll help keep the podcast going. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.